The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association. Welcome to Season 5 of Retail Therapy, proudly brought to you by American Express. This season, I'll be chatting with a great lineup of leaders in Australia's retail industry right here in the Amex Lounge, including the CEOs of some of the biggest retailers in Australia and across the globe. We'll be finding out what makes them tick, what defines their leadership style, and how they got to the top of their game. Joining me for some retail therapy today is Jack Gans, co-founder and chairman at Chemist Warehouse. Chemist Warehouse needs no introduction. It's the most recognised pharmacy retail brand in Australia, with more than 350 stores and over 8,000 staff across the country and a huge online offering to boot. Jack has been chairman at Chemist Warehouse for basically his entire career, transforming a fledgling business into a market leader. Jack, welcome. Welcome. Paul, how are you? Very good to speak with you. Now, we've been desperate to get you on my Retail Therapy podcast series, so we're very pleased to have you, and thank you for accepting this invitation. Now, um, now I know that you've been chairman at Chemist Warehouse for some time. Now, I believe you opened your first pharmacy in 1972. Now, we're not going to give your age away, Jack, although I'm sure if we Googled it, we'd get it. Uh, so, and, and now today you're at the helm of Australia's number one pharmacy retailer. So tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, first, I'm not necessarily at the helm. I'm, I'm certainly the chairman, but uh, we've got a big team that's uh, running the business. And uh, I think it's only through their, um, through their success and, uh, and efforts that we were able to be where we are. I started the first pharmacy in 1972 in partnership with my brother. Quickly, I sort of morphed into a entrepreneur and started importing sunglasses, which eventually became the specs, Latan, Australis, Australis Cosmetics and Australis Fragrances. That business was growing as we were growing the number of stores. We had a number of partnerships. And in 1991, when Graham Smorkin made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and when I sold that distribution business, we had 35 stores. I went back and did an MBA. Uh, I don't know why. Um, I did an MBA. People ask me why. And I learned doing the MBA that, that if I had done an MBA before I started business, I probably would never have started business because <laughs> it tells you all the things. It gives you all the all the things that you should look out for and makes you scared of making any decisions. But anyway, did the MBA. I enjoyed that. And we re- looked at reinvigorating the pharmacies. We had 35 stores in 1991. And they're all various different uh, brands, Amkel, Guardian, Chemart, various different brands, and uh, run differently. I thought, knowing retail, that we could do a better job than the wholesalers who ran the marketing groups, because the wholesalers do it for their margin that they make on the on the products that you sell and the rebates you get, but we do it for products that we sell. So if there's a choice between a product that sells well and a product that doesn't sell well, the the, manif- the wholesalers will push you towards the one that uh, make the best margin on. Mm. So we decided to take it all in-house, and we created our first marketing brand called My Chemist. My Chemist launched about 1970, uh, sorry, 1992, 93, and we, uh, we had it as a discounter. And it was a discounter, but it was a pretend discounter. 
when I say pretend discount, it was a pretend discount because everything was full recommended retail other than the 100-odd specials that rotated. Well, today, a lot of our competitors say that they're discounters, but in fact, they don't discount everything like we do today. Mm. They have a rotating basket of specials that they that they discount. But what it gave us was it gave us the opportunity to be able to see how we could grow the front of shop business. The average pharmacy in Australia today, and back then, does about 25% uh, of their business front of shop, which is everything other than prescriptions. Yes. We're able to grow that to, to 30, 40, 50% by increasing the em- emphasis and the promotional activity on the front of the shop. And that gave us a much bigger total retail footprint. And that was the beginning of how we started to, you know, to um, be successful as a marketing group. And then in 2000, we looked at the market and we said, what would happen if we discounted everything by 25%? And that's a real 25% of everything. Well, apart from going broke, what else could happen? <laughs> well, we didn't quite go broke, but it certainly was very was a very expensive exercise. We found, you know, it was a lot of hard work to get rebates and uh, and advertising money and volumes that enabled us to be able to get the margins and the profitability and the and and the rebates back from the suppliers that enabled us to make it work. The two biggest things in retail, as everyone knows, is rent and wages, mm. and for us. Being in a high rent area just didn't work with our model. But if we were able to say, do you know four, five, six, seven million dollars a year turnover in a store, then the rent as a percentage would 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 come down. Yes. And they're the two factors: that and wages. And because we were very specialised, we had very specialised people because of the volume. We end up averaging about eight or nine million dollars a year turnover. We're able to have you know someone handling the the incoming you know, goods, someone doing the orders, someone being on the register the whole time, and it was much more efficient. That gave us the ability to be able to um, reduce our costs and cost of operating to the point where we could make a reasonable profit ultimately when we got rebates and advertising subsidies. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Jack. You know Chemist Warehouse is one of my most favourite stores. I actually was only there shopping there today. Um, We've had a joke about this previously, but um, I do love shopping in your stores and I think you've done an amazing job. And I I want to start with, um, you know, I think it's amazing uh, when I think about the Specs, Latan, Australis. These are iconic Australian brands, and you were behind those. You were the founder of those and the, the, the genius behind those brands. And I think that's an amazing stuff because most people in my generation would remember those brands being significantly part of their cosmetic cupboards during um, the 80s particularly. So um, that, that's, that would have been hard baby to give up, I would have thought. It was. I mean, you remember that the Specs, sort of a French brand, it wasn't really French, but it, it had a French connotations. And there were a lot of talk about when the French were, were having um, nuclear testing on the on the in the Pacific Islands, mm. that people should ban anything French. And uh, we were concerned about that. As we got bigger, as we uh, towards 1991, when we uh, finally sold out, as we got bigger. I say to my accountant, "How are we going?" He say, "You're going great. You're making a lot of money." And I'd say, "But where's the cash? Where's the money?" Oh, it's all tied up in stock and debtors, uh, and bank guarantees. You know, I signed a bank guarantee that when I when I looked at it, I said to my brother, "I said, Do you know what we just signed? You know, I couldn't I couldn't get past the number of zeros." <laughs> and I guess that's what one of the reasons why we decided to sell. Very reluctantly, I must tell you. You know, our daughters were pretty upset. My wife, Evelyn 
who worked who worked closely with me in the business was upset that we sold it. But I think I did the right thing because it gave us um, security. We, we, we no longer had a situation where we were up to our eyeballs in debt. Yeah. And it allowed you, I guess, the freedom to go and do these other amazing things that you've done with, particularly with Chemist Warehouse, uh, which we're talking about today. So I sort of want to get a sense from you you know, you've got an entrepreneurial spirit. You clearly, you know, you're a risk taker. Was it always your dream to build a company from the ground up into a household name? In fact, you've got a history of doing that. Yeah, I, I, I must I must tell you that when I came into my mother's womb, the first thing I said was, I'm going to be an $8 billion business. <laughs> I love now, the, real, the reality is, the reality is that, that I've never, ever, you know, I've never, ever made it, you know, sort of had targets. I basically say, I'll do the best I can. I remember when we hit $1 billion turnover, um, we had a general manager who said, I oh, will get you to a $1 billion turnover. And I said, oh, that'll never happen. Mm. That'll never happen in, you know, in my lifetime. When we got to $1 billion, instead of celebrating cracking the champagne, we said, well, when's the next, when's the next billion mm. coming up? You know, we sort of all, you know, when we when we got to New Zealand, uh, we said, well, you know, that's going well. What We said, no, no, let's look at the next country we can go to. I don't really have um, a target. We just say, well, we'll do whatever we can. When you said before, you said that uh, that we take risks. Mm. To be really clear, an entrepreneur does, in my opinion, the Harvard Business School uh, definition of entrepreneurship doesn't involve risk. It's. Uh, I, I think that the definition is pursuit of business opportunities without access to the resources av- available. Yes. So an entrepreneur really does not take risk. What they you do is use, use other people's resources to to be able to maximise the return for the business. And not, for example, when we first started importing sunglasses, I went to the Taiwanese consulate and uh, looked through a telephone book of, t- of manufacturers of different products. I found, uh, you know, sunglasses, wrote them down, went back to my pharmacy with two fingers typed letters because there was no emails or there was no faxes, mm-hmm. there was no no other communication. I, I, read, I typed a letter to each of the suppliers and said, Dear sir, we have the largest – you've been recommended by the Taiwanese consulate, kind of true. Um, we have the largest importer of sunglasses in Australia – it wasn't a lie, which is the timing difference. Mm. Please please send me some samples. And, you know, th- that's how we started. So we ended up starting off with the samples. And then I said, okay, if we if we import, I don't know, X thousand pairs of sunglasses, the worst that's going to happen, I'll have, you know, five years' supply of sunglasses. <laughs> it's not going to, you know, not the end of the world, you know. So I've always had a fallback position. And I think as, as, as a true entrepreneur, I think I'm a true entrepreneur, I always look for ways to minimise the risk, but take but but take a chance. I mean, you've got to take a chance, but you've yes. got to do it in a way that minimises the, the actual risk, financial risk, and all other risks. Jack, when you reflect on your history, and you you just mentioned your mother's womb there, well, get to your parents. What 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 influence did your mum and dad have on your entrepreneurial spirit? I was born in Russia just after the war. My parents went there to escape the the Germans. After the war, uh, we were refugees in a, in a refugee camp in Paris. We came to Australia uh, when I was two years old, penniless. And the only thing that my parents ever instilled in me was hard work and education. Mm. You know, for me, it was all about hard work. Just, you know, you know my parents worked 24-7. I mean, my father was a farrier, made fur coats. My mother was a, a dressmaker. Uh, and for, for them, 
You know, they they work twenty four seven to educate and 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 feed their their kids. So I guess for me, um, that was really the you know the thing that motivated me to you know to um, you know to 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 work and to be successful. Um, I originally wanted to be a doctor, but at the last minute because. My parents never gave me any money. I decided not to do medicine, even though I got into medicine. And then that's what that's what I decided to do, pharmacy. Well, so you decided pharmacy over the fashion industry. I'm quite intrigued in that. Over, over, over medicine. Over medicine and, and the fashion industry, given that you're, both your mum and dad actually were very much lured to the to fashion. I wouldn't say they were. I mean, my father was a farrier. He made fur coats. I don't think he, he designed them, but anyway. Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Thanks, fair enough. <laughs> but thanks thanks for the, you we'll, know. We'll give him. We'll give him. My, the, mother, my mother did design. My mother did design. Yeah. Did design. Uh, you know, she was a seamstress and did design dresses. When you think about Chemist Warehouse, the, the success of it, did you anticipate the success it would achieve? To be honest, I really wasn't sure that it was going to work. But like all things that we do, we try to have a fallback situation. So what we, the first store we built, we built when it, the first store we built in Footscray, we had a Spotlight, friends of the family owned Spotlight, and they had a empty shop that was a fairly large, a thousand square metres. Yeah. And they gave us a peppercorn rent on that. So like it was like, you know, take it if it doesn't work give it back that was fine so there was no there wasn't a lot of you know downside we used secondhand supermarket shelving we didn't uh, you know we didn't buy new shelving everything was secondhand we you know we we did it as cheaply as possible on the basis that if it works it works if it doesn't work what we'll do is we'll just convert it to a regular pharmacy and uh, you know and, and and go back to that um, and, and I must tell you that for the first two two or three years it was really hard going because we had to really tweak all the numbers, you know, to um, the average pharmacy, the average pharmacy does about 40% gross margin uh, and ends up with around about a net, about 10%. So they've got 30% expenses. Right. We were we were, we were were going to discount everything by 25%, which with all our rebates and things was going to give us something like about a 23% gross margin. If we had a 30% gross margin, so if we had a 23% gross margin and a 30% cost of operating, you can see we'd be underwater you know, mm. by, a, by 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 a, a fair amount. But it was but by being able to by being able to tweak the um, advertising support we got from the suppliers, rebates, and being able to make sure. I mean, our rent at the moment is about two and a half percent of turnover, whereas average pharmacy is about 12. percent So we've got almost a 10 percent benefit in that one particular thing as well. And because our turnover is so large, we're averaging over $12 million per store. Things like electricity and, and gas and, uh, you know, and telephones and that, as a percentage of the expenses are much smaller too. So all those other expenses, which can amount to quite a few percent, in our case, um, become far, you know, far smaller percentage. So it was um, was by doing by tweaking all those numbers and really working hard, maximising our uh, buying ability, you know, buying as cheaply as possible, making sure we paid no more than we had to for everything that we, that we, all the inputs, you know, everything, labels, you know, everything. So the biggest benefactor here, Jack, really has been the customer because they've been able to access pharmacy and beauty and cosmetic products at really you know, keen prices, I guess that's probably the best way yeah. for me to describe it. You were probably seen and still are today being seen as a disruptor. 
to the pharmacy industry. What do you think your competitors would say about you? Well, I know what they'd say, but they're not actually. But it's not actually pretty fair because although we did disrupt them, in reality, what we did was we grew the market. I know that for a fact because mm. I mean I know that for a fact because our market share in Australia of most of the categories that we're in is much greater than it is in other countries. So like take vitamins and mineral products. I mean we represent one billion dollars out of the one point six billion dollars that's sold in Australia, but if you compare that with America, the American market's only worth nine billion dollars. So we're about two and a half times the volume per capita. When we enter a market, we definitely do take away some of the business from our competitors. But it's not that, you know, when we open up, we open up with about six or seven, eight billion, eight million dollars turnover. We average 12. We don't take all that business from our custom, from our competitors. We take it from supermarkets, we take it from specialty stores, we take, take it from, you know, from, from health food stores. And more importantly than that, we actually grow the market. Because mm. you know yourself, if you come to our store, what about pharmacies? And you go in there to buying a packet of aspirin, you'll end up walking out with a hundred dollars worth of you know, shampoo and vitamins and other things. That's what happened to me. That's the, what happened to me today, Jack. I could tell you. Yeah, that's <laughs> that. That's the biggest complaint my friends give me. My friends say you, you're a bastard. I went to your shop. I spent a hundred dollars, and I said, yeah, but you probably spent, you probably saved two hundred. Ah, uh, good point. <laughs> good point. So, so the thing is, we we do grow the market. I mean, uh, certainly our competitors don't. I mean, pharmacy is a very, very um, restrictive, restricted uh, business. It's very anti-competitive, a lot of regulations. The Pharmacy Guild, who work for the 5,500 pharmacists that own the 5,500 pharmacies that compete with us, work for the benefit of those pharmacists who don't want to have competition. They don't want to work on a Wednesday. They want to play golf. They don't want to have more than one and a half stores on average. Mm. They don't want to get into a sweat. And that's fine. I have no problem with that. That that's entirely their, you know, the, you know, their decision and their lifestyle. But I, I want to provide a better price. I mean, I think we've saved the Australian consumer over one billion dollars a year. If you work out a twenty five percent discount on recommended retail, yeah. although now everyone's selling below recommended retail to some extent, but twenty five percent on eight billion dollars is probably close to two billion dollars. I'd say we've saved conservatively. One billion dollars per year in in total, but also our competitors uh, have reduced their prices and they've also increased their ranging. They've also increased, you know, they've also mm. become more competitive and sort of taken uh, care of making sure that their range is going to be something that's presentable to the consumer. Yes. Now, Jack, you you know I've complained in the past about not having a chemist warehouse in my suburb, and you've explained to me the complexity of the regulation within the pharmacy. For our listeners, maybe just explain how the pharmacy regulations work. There's a number of regulations. It's a very highly regulated industry, and it's certainly anti-competitive. Every inquiry into the industry said that it's anti-competitive and that competition restrictions should be removed. And there's two restrictions. One is ownership, where only a pharmacist can own a pharmacy. Now, we're okay with that because all our pharmacies are owned by pharmacists, and there is partnerships. We've now got a franchise model that works within that constraints, but that's okay. But one of the biggest issues is is location rules. I can only open a pharmacy where I can buy an existing PBS license. Right. So if you're in an area where I can't buy a license, and a lot of pharmacists don't want to sell me their pharmacy because they're very friendly with their with their colleagues around them. 
So if you're in uh, in a suburb and you've got six pharmacists around you within the next within a two kilometer radius, and you want to sell your business, you probably want to sell it to someone else other than us because you're scared that if you sell it to Chemist Warehouse, that your colleagues are going to suffer from the competition we're going to bring to the area. So there are some rules where you can actually open a pharmacy in circumstances other than buying a number, but they're very, very restrictive. And as we are able to find loopholes, and we have been able to find loopholes, the Guild quickly fill them in. If we were able to, if we were able to open as many pharmacies as we wanted to, we would have another two to three hundred pharmacies to fill the holes, like wow. like a new area. Mm. And I think that you know it's happening. It's happening slowly. We're slowly wrapping about thirty stores a year, happening slowly. But you know we are restricted. Whereas on the other hand, when we when we went to New Zealand, in New Zealand we were able to open where we wanted to, when we wanted to. Right. So we've now got stores in New Zealand that are averaging twenty million dollars turnover per year because they're in locations we want to put them in, in sizes of locations that suit the, you know, suit the, you know we want about 1,000 square metres. Mm. But it's sometimes very hard to get 1,000 square metres when you've got all the other factors you've got to take into consideration. It seems like ludicrous in this sort of world of anti-competitive that we've got these outdated laws that are protecting industry and not great from a customer's point of view. It is. There's been numerous inquiries about the comp- the competitive nature of pharmacy, but the Pharmacy Guild, uh, bless their heart, are very, very strong donors to both parties and uh, the, probably the best lobby group in Australia. And so it's pretty hard to compete with them. They've probably got eight people in Canberra full-time doing nothing but lobbying the uh, parliamentarians. Mm. We'd rather put our head down and bottom up and, um, and work to make a business uh, more efficient and effective and, um, you know, give the consumer what they want. Yeah, agree. What, what's your favourite thing when you think about a pharmacy retail industry? What sort of lured you there that that I, I, we, we got your history about wanting to previously to be a, a doctor, doctor, then decided to go the, the next best thing being a pharmacy. Is that the way this whole has this life plan has worked for you, Jack? Well, no. To be honest, I I, I enjoyed the academic aspects of pharmacy. I really, I really, uh, I, you know, I came near top of the class in in the years, um, and I enjoyed the academic. But when I went out there in into retail, I didn't find it as satisfactory or you know, satisfying as I yeah. would have liked. And that's why I looked around for some entrepreneurial things to do. And I thought, you know, what can I do to sort of be a bit, you know, creative? And that's how we started importing, you know, sunglasses and specs latin. Now what I'm doing is I'm now doing the strategic, you know, uh, stuff for the uh, for the business, including international operations, expanding internationally, negotiating, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of the deals. We have a lot of strategic alliances with suppliers. One of the things we've done, which has been very, very um, successful in my opinion, is we've said we have a really good relationship with suppliers. If you think about it, number one, customers, number two, suppliers, number three, staff. Mm. Without suppliers and without product, we've got nothing to sell. I know that when we had a a problem in, um, in getting supply when we moved wholesalers, that the loss in sales that we made was – you know, it was way beyond anything that we would imagine. Like, you know, if you lose sales, you'll you lose dollars, and then you know, you lose customer support. But, but so we have a good we have a good relationship with suppliers. But we go one further than that. We tr- we can, if we try, if possible, 
to enter into a strategic alliance where we actually get equity in the supplier. So that, we, you know, we've done that with a number of suppliers. So what happens is we say, look, we want to be your partner in the supply chain. We want to be your partner so we can work with you to produce products to help develop new product development, which means that we have more products that we can sell, which means that you can then use that to grow your business. And therefore, if we get equity in your business, then we're going to have an increase in, in value as a result of that. We've done that with a number of companies. Like one of the companies we did with was Inova that had a number of antihistamines and that had a number of, of cough mixtures. And we developed an antihistamine range right. of them, which is an expansion. And it went so well that they were able to sell the business. The venture capitalists were able to sell the business at a great, uh, at a great return. And it's win-win for everybody because yeah. we end up making margin on that. We end up having product we could sell. And we believe that having a strategic alliance goes one better than just having a good relationship. Jack, did you always feel prepared to be a leader or did you basically learn as you, as you went? I don't know if I ever learned to be a leader. I mean, you know, like I never asked anybody, can I be a leader? I was, you know, my brother and I started in partnership. You know, I didn't ask permission to be a leader. I just said, well, you know, this is my business. Um, you know, this is what we're going to do. And, and, and I've... Well, I think we lead by example. I mean, there's nothing that nothing that's happening in our, in in our business that I haven't personally did myself. Yes, done myself hands on. Nothing, mm. you know, whether it's accounting, whether it's the every ordering, whether everything, everything, everything I've done. And by doing by doing everything yourself, you lead by example. Yes, and it's the whole the whole organisation has the same culture. Mario Rocky is our CEO. Up until recently, he would he would go to store openings and he would cut cartons to put out the front of the store. Right, and you know by doing that, by actually being hands on to that extent, it has that culture that carries forward for all the staff. What would be your advice? We have a lot of um, young listeners as well listening would be listening into this podcast. What would be your advice for any aspiring leaders uh, listening to our chat today? Leaders or, or entrepreneurs? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, actually, both. So, so maybe well, uh, any words of? I don't wisdom? know about leading because I, I, I don't know how to teach someone to lead. I just think that uh, that if you, by the way, if you're a leader, it doesn't mean that you know more than everyone else. Mm. It means that you just have to have the right direction. I mean, there's a lot of people smarter than me in our organisation, and I wouldn't want to tell them what to do. But the thing is, even the smart people come up with some dumb things. <laughs> And it's and it's and it's being able to identify what's and making sure that they don't go down that direction. I mean, I've you know, especially with creative people, six good things, four bad things. If you don't weed out the four bad things, yes. you end up with you know, you end up with a. My advice to anyone wanting to go into business is that business is really hard. It really is tough, and unless you've got a strategic advantage, don't do it. Yes. And what I mean by that is. People come to me all the time and they say, I've got this business idea. And I say, you know what? The business idea has to be good. But more importantly than that is what strategic advantage can you add to the business that you want to put together? Like, for example, you've got a uh, automatic dog poo picker up to upper machine, right? <laughs> Great idea. Yes. Now, so the person over there has got the same idea as you have. What have you got? that can add value that they don't have. And don't tell me you're going to work hard or you've got money because that is not really relevant. If you were to tell me that your father-in-law is the head of the uh, veterinary association and they've got access to 3,000 you know, veterinary clinics 
and you can market through there, then I think you've got a winner because they don't have that. Yes. And you can have an advantage over them because, if, you know, if, if you don't have a strategic advantage, as I learned in, in my MBA, if you, if you get into a fair fight in marketing, both parties end up with bloody noses. <laughs> Very good point. Did you, did you ever have self-doubts in the early days at Chemist Warehouse? Well, it depends what you mean by self-doubts. Did I... You know, I mean, I always, always had a uh, fallback. You know, if, if it doesn't work, we'll, yes. you know, we'll fall back. I mean, not everything we've done has been successful. I'll give you an, a, an example that really, that really upsets me when I think about it. I was looking at some old, uh, some old videos, uh, some old TV commercial we produced, and it was about 1985, 85. We had developed Australis, and we had developed. A new product called Friends of Australis, okay? Friends of Australis, all natural, no nasties. It was ecologically friendly. It was free of all of the nasty things in in toiletries. Shampoo, conditioner, moisturiser range. And the bottle was made from recycled uh, plastic materials with bits of gunk in it. So, like, it was a really recycled bottle. It Mm. was a great concept, 19... 80, I think probably 1980, maybe 85. Failure. It failed. It failed. Wow, why? Because it was too early. It was too early. Right. Today, I think it would fly. So, you know, like, I mean, you know, timing's often important. You know, you can have a great idea at the wrong time and like that. That cost us a lot of money. We had a TV commercial produced. We produced product. We had to withdraw. We had call it back. It was very disappointing. And when I think about it now, I think, you know, it wasn't a failure. It was just the wrong timing. Mm. Timing's very important. Now, you're a busy man. How do you balance leisure with your work responsibilities? Well, I enjoy work, so work's my leisure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good response. People say to me, people say to me, what hobbies do you have? I said, work's my hobby. It doesn't matter where I am. I'm always thinking about work. I just enjoy it. I love it. When I sold Australis, I was sort of semi-retired. I said, you know, I said, okay, we'll sit back and the pharmacies will run themselves. I'll sit back and I'll, I'll, I'll retire. It was the worst time of my life. It took all day to pay my Telstra bill. You know, like I would wake up in the morning, I would do stuff, nothing meaningful because I didn't have a business. I wasn't running in the, wasn't running in the business. End of the day, I'd say, oh, geez, I worked hard. What did I do? The only thing I could remember was I paid my Telstra bill. And so I said, you know, you know, I've got to do something that's that gives me satisfaction, something meaningful that has, you know, some impact on myself and people and things. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, can I ask you what's the best piece of advice you've received, S- something that stayed with you, Jack, through all of these years? Best piece of advice I've received? Well, I think that when I just told you about, you know, must, you've got to have a strategic advantage. Um, but I, I, th- I think that I'd about advice but as i said before i think the important thing in in business is to be able to see things instantly quickly and be able to discern because you see a lot of stuff which is quite quite you know that that really doesn't come you know doesn't really mean it doesn't give you any it doesn't have anything that can follow through that doesn't have any, any any growth or any future be able to see something, you know. My Evelyn's a, Evelyn's fantastic at this. Yeah. In, in a trade show, we were in a trade show in the back of the stand. Oh, she found the specs. The back of the stand there was one pair of sunglasses with a feather hanging off it. She said, "What's that?" And that was the beginning of the specs. If she hadn't have seen that, we yes. probably would never have had the specs, Latan Australis. So I think the advice is look, you know, look around everywhere. Everywhere 
there is I, there are ideas. I mean, doesn't matter what industry you talk about, what industry you look at, everything's the same but different. Yes. But the same problems, the same factors around that affect business, they just have a different colour, different flavour. Jack, appreciate you joining us for some retail therapy. Congratulations on all your success at Chemist Warehouse. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today for Retail Therapy in the Amex Lounge. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that follow button on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You won't want to miss an episode. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. If you're a new listener, you can find our back catalogue of new episodes, over 50 now, on our website. We've covered small business, sustainability, tech and innovation, and we even release a yearly Christmas mini-series. For more information on what we do at the ARA, head to retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All of the links can be found in the show notes. I'd now like to welcome Kelly Taggart, CEO of Roses Only, to the Amex Lounge. Roses Only is a leading Australian-owned retailer for delivered premium flowers and gifts. Its passionate florists, friendly floral consultants and dependable delivery drivers have brought joy to millions of people all over Australia. Formed in 1995, it brings together 45 years of floristry experience and established 10 florist studios in major cities nationwide as well as some partner florists. Kelly, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. Since its inception in 1995, Roses Only would have witnessed a lot of change and development in the floristry business. What are some of the ways you've innovated and evolved the business? Yes, we've uh, certainly seen a lot of changes since 1995. Uh, Back then, I think uh, you would have been going into a physical florist shop to buy your flowers. And these days, you have a lot of options where you can buy online, whether it's uh, through your mobile phone, either calling someone and talking to a real person or buying online through your phone or your laptop. So it really um, provides a lot of advantages there in ways that you can order in all manner of types. We've even had someone that has called in while they were riding a horse uh, and ordered flowers on their way to whatever it was that they were doing, riding a horse, would you believe it? So I guess um, back then also, first when we were online, payment options, uh, there wasn't many available. So I think we only had one payment option available. And then it's been with the likes of relationships like American Express that we've been able to really diversify those payment options for customers. And even now, uh, recently, we've been able to roll out uh, pay with points for American Express. So you can pay with your credit card points to buy your flowers, which we think is really cool. So I guess the evolution of social media has also impacted our industry quite a bit. The way that we market to customers online, uh, the rise of Google AdWords um, is a major part of the floral industry, knowing where you want to deliver something and being able to search for flower delivery to Sydney or flower delivery to Brisbane. That's generally been on the rise since um, online has increased. Uh, And also being understanding of how we can impact uh, the environment um, with more sustainable floristry as well. And I guess over the last 15 years, we've really focused on being a data-driven company and using that data to make sure that 
we're not creating the waste in the first place. So making sure that we're buying what we need for when we need it, for when our customers want it, which I'm sure you can imagine is a really difficult task. Uh, We have about a hundred different types of flowers and greenery that we manage throughout the year. Um, So you can imagine the complexity that goes with that. And we've been able to get our wastage down to around two to three percent overall, which I think is pretty fantastic. Apart from that, though, we're always looking at ways that people are doing things internationally and talking to our local flower farms to see what other sort of uh, business practices we can adopt as well. From before the days of the pandemic until now, what kind of patterns have you noticed in customer behaviour and how has this impacted the way you future-proof your business? I think not much has changed in the way that people still want things really fast and really reliably. But we were already investing in our digital infrastructure for our um, for all of our warehouses around the country. And then when the pandemic hit we saw a volume really increase. So people were, they couldn't visit their loved ones. They really wanted to send a message of love to people. And we saw that really expand. And that was a really beautiful thing to be a part of. So this meant that the advancement that we've had in our technical and digital capabilities through reliable and scalable digital practices meant that we could really provide great customer service to people uh, and reliable delivery. So I guess with more customers looking at buying online, that's meant that we've had a much more expanded customer base to talk to. And uh, thankfully, uh, they've had a really good experience with us and they've been able to experience our brand and how wonderful it is to send flowers to someone and hear the smile on someone's face when they call you or send you a message. And that's definitely driven driven a lot of uh, customer growth and repeat customers post-pandemic. So, it's been really great for us. 